Let's be honest, life can be so discouraging. Have you ever despaired of life before? I know I have. You know, when I was a kid and I used to sing, thy loving kindness is better than life, I was like, really? You know, I'm, I'm sorry, I was a church kid. You know, and sometimes they're just words. But as I get older, I'm like, your loving kindness is better than life. There's sometimes that life just gets so hard. Sometimes it seems like the attacks are relentless. I don't know about you, but you just pay the bills and the more come. There are times that you feel so, you just do the dishes and more come. You empty the trash and more come. You do the laundry and more comes. There are times you just feel so alone and abandoned and nobody seems to understand you. Or there are times where you're so condemned, you think or you know that you have blown it. You have just done it and you shouldn't have said that word. You shouldn't have taken that action. It was a stupid thing to do. Not you, just me. Life is hard sometimes because the future is so unknown. Lord, I don't know what's up ahead. So far, this has happened and this has happened. And I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what to do. What do you want me to do? And there are so many threats. Things that threaten our health. Things that threaten our future. Things that threaten our emotional well-being. There are so many threats. But we were warned by Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 33, that there would be times like this. Jesus said to us, not just his disciples, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This, this phrase, be of good cheer, it's the Greek word tharseo. I love it. I've just been saying tharseo all week long just because it's fun to say tharseo. And it means cheer up or be filled with joy, be elated. It means be encouraged, be strengthened by joy. It's the Nehemiah principle. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It is to be strengthened or fortified or undergird by joy. And this is a word that Jesus used at different times in the gospel. To the paralyzed man, paralyzed by sin. In Matthew 9, 2, Jesus said, Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Be elated. Be strengthened by joy. To a woman plagued by an issue for 12 years in Luke 8, verse 48. No one else could help. She was at the end of her resources. And she was reaching out to Jesus among the throngs. Grasping with that touch of faith. Jesus said, daughter, Be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. To his disciples who were rowing and struggling against an angry sea, and it looked as if they were headed for disaster, the very sea that raged against them and impeded their progress, filled their boat, and threatened their lives, was the sea that Jesus came walking on under his feet. And he said to them, do not be afraid. Be of good cheer, it is I. To Paul the apostle, after being mobbed by the Jews in Jerusalem, arrested by the Romans, tried by the Sanhedrin, and imprisoned in Roman barracks, Jesus stood by him in the night and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness of me in Rome. What a word of comfort. What a word of courage and strength and absolute joy. Now this word coming from anyone else might not have had the same effect. I know um, there was a time that I really, really fell into depression in England And I remember my son Char came up to me and I had gotten so depressed. I I had been in bed for three days. I couldn't get out of bed because of the depression. I had never, ever been depressed in my life. In fact, my nickname by my parents was Sunshine. 
And I just, there was no sunshine in England. Maybe that was part of it. But I was just, I was going, I had never, ever had these feelings or never, ever felt paralyzed before by depression. And I remember my son, Char, he was all of uh, 13 years old and came in my room and he says, you know, what's going on with you? And I said, Char, I really don't know. And he says, you think you could just give up being our mom? You think you could just go to bed? You, aren't you the Christian? Aren't you the one who's teaching the Bible? You, you think this is the right way to act? You think this pleases God? You know what? You need to cheer up and get out of this bed. And he turned around and walked out of the room and said, I talked to her, she'll be all right. You know, coming from Char, it really, it was like, it was like just, you know, another nail in the casket, actually. But I didn't let him know that. I wanted him to be a pastor someday as he is. But coming from Jesus, it's a word of forgiveness. It's a word of healing. It's a word of restoration, a word of salvation, and a word of comfort. Here in the night season, feeling no doubt like a failure, At one of the lowest points in his life, Paul communes with the eternal one who is saying, Paul, I have seen it all. I have already been where you are going and I already know what you're going through. So cheer up. Don't worry. I've gone before you. It's a word of empowerment. Jesus, Paul's master, the one he lived to please is saying, I am pleased. I do love you. In your night season, Jesus has a word for you. Tharseo. Oh, it feels very good to say it. This word, be of good cheer, take comfort, be joyful, be strengthened. As we look at Acts chapter 23 and 24, we're going to see four reasons for good cheer. Four reasons for Tharseo from the life of Paul. Number one reason we find it in Isaiah 54, 17. First reason to be of good cheer. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servant of the Lord. How many here are the servant of the Lord? All right, it's for you. And their righteousness is of me. God will provide the righteousness. God provides all the qualifications so that you can qualify for this promise to be of good cheer because Jesus is Lord. He's over all. He's sovereign. He's got it all under control. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his father's will. Nothing is out of order in your life. It is all going according to plan. As he says in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. It's all weaving together. It's all coming together. Thirdly, because God is not finished with you. You might be finished with yourself, but God's not finished with you. He's got more plans up ahead. As it says in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's got more plans for you. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it in Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. There's more good things to come. He's not finished. And finally, be of good cheer because God is with you. As he stood with Paul, he is standing with you. And he is promising that he will never leave you nor forsake you so that you may boldly proclaim, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me when the Lord is standing right with me? Be of good cheer. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Think of all the weapons that were formed against Paul. 
Let's start right here in chapter 23 with this council. Here he is still in Jerusalem, and he's got to go back before these accusers. This is the Sanhedrin, and it's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, and they're both against Paul. The Pharisees are angry with Paul because they believe he's forsaking the law. The Sadducees are upset with Paul because he says there is a resurrection from the dead, and Jesus is the proof of that resurrection from the dead. Paul had become uncontrollable. Every place he had gone, he preached the resurrection from the dead, and Jews and Greeks alike got saved and became fellow brethren together. And he was seen as a menace. Now he's before the enemies. The high priest was Ananias, and he was a Sadducee. He had bought the position of high priest with money and because of his family's influence. He was about 80 years old at this time. And Paul goes before this council and he says, I have lived with a good conscience before God all my life. Men, brethren, fathers, I know you, you know me. You know how I lived. You know my zeal for the Lord. Now, Paul wasn't saying I've lived a perfect life. He's saying, but I have lived with a conscience that is sensitive to the love of God, uh, law of God. I have lived my life before God, wanting to please God. That's how I've lived. I've been convicted easily. Two of the things that I look for if a person is truly born again, you know, if they say the sinner's prayer, did it take? Yeah, did you ever wonder, like, I don't think it took with them. I think they need to do it like five more times, maybe 10. But the two things I look for a healthy Christian is I look for a healthy appetite. Do they want the word? Do they want more of Jesus? Do they want fellowship? Are they getting the cravings? Secondly, I look for conviction of sin. Do they feel bad when they hurt someone's feelings? Your conviction of sin is not a sign that you are outside God's will. It's a sign that you are inside God's will. And so Paul is saying, I get convicted. My conscience is convicted when I don't obey the law. At this time, Ananias orders one of the men who's near Paul to strike him on the face. And Paul, as we know, says, you whitewashed wall, God will strike you. (laughs) I love Paul. He's human. And then someone says, do you dare to say that to the high priest? And Paul says, no, I'm sorry. I didn't realize he was the high priest because I know what the law says. You know, the law says that you shouldn't bring an accusation against the high priest, Exodus 21. And yet this high priest who had struck Paul was contrary to the law. He didn't get convicted. He wasn't applying the law to his life. So Paul is being accused of not living by the law or dismissing the law of Moses. And Paul is showing, no, by the power of Jesus Christ, I actually live it even more because the Holy Spirit is working in me. And here's Ananias, the great representation of the law, the one who should be living by the law more than anyone else. And what is he doing? Breaking the law. And then Paul is showing the sensitivity towards the law. So Paul is brought in, and as you might say, the deck was loaded against Paul. Years ago, um, when we lived in England, My father um, and mom had come over to visit, and we left my dad with my five-year-old to watch them. You know, dad loved watching the grandchildren. And so my grandson had talked my dad into playing cards, and they played war. And I got home, and my dad said, you got to watch this kid. I'm like, why? He goes, he went through the deck beforehand and put a lower card, higher card, lower card, higher card, lower card, higher card. And then he dealt it to me. And he said, I'm looking at my hand and I keep having twos, threes, fours, fives. He said, not one card in my hand was above a six. And he keeps coming king, ace. (laughs) The deck was loaded. That's what we mean by a loaded deck. Paul didn't realize that this was the high priest. This man ruled from... A.D. 47 to A.D. 58, he was hated 
by um, most Jews because of his corruption. In fact, he was later, even in his 80s, hunted down and murdered by his brethren, by the Jews, because of how corrupt he was. Why Paul didn't recognize him, I don't know. It could be because he aged, because Paul hadn't been in Jerusalem for 18 years, because he wasn't wearing his priestly garments, because Paul perhaps had eye problems. Or maybe Paul was just hyper-focused on what the Lord wanted him to say at the time. But Paul apologized for what he had done, showing his adherence to the law. And then Paul cried out. As he looked around, he saw that he was dealing with Pharisees and Sadducees. And so he perceived the division in the room. And so he stated his background. Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he said this, a dissension ensued. And the scribes, who were the Pharisees, suddenly sided with Paul. They totally changed sides. And they begin to say in verse 9, we find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. This is interesting because this is the same counsel that Gamaliel, who had been Paul's instructor, gave to the council some 40, 50 years earlier, or 30 years earlier, concerning Peter's sermon about Jesus rising from the dead. So now these scribes and Pharisees are saying, look, maybe he has had an encounter. There is something going on. Jesus had said to his disciples, take no thought, don't plan out what you're going to say when you're going to appear before councils and kings and governors for my sake, because the Holy Spirit will give you irresistible words. And that's what we see right here. This one sentence, I am here concerning the resurrection from the dead. It changed the mind of the Pharisees so that suddenly they're saying, we don't find a fault with this man. Maybe an angel has spoken to him. Maybe he does have the truth. And the Sadducees are getting upset. So we see that the council begins to turn on each other. And the Romans come in. They grab Paul and they put him in protective custody while his enemies turn on each other. It reminds me of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where we find out that the enemies of Judah were coming against them and they were in the valley of Seir. They weren't too far from Jerusalem. And the Lord speaks to the assembly at the courtyard of the temple and says, you will not have to fight this battle. The Lord will gain the victory. And those who were marching out to battle, they put the singers in front just to sing praise. And we're told as they begin to sing praises to the Lord, the Lord set an ambush. And so those people that had come against Judah turned on each other and they killed each other until there was not a living man among the enemies. No weapon formed against you will prosper. We see that again in the plot by the enemy to overthrow or to capture and murder Paul in verses 12 through 23 of chapter 23. We see that 40 zealous Jews agree together not to eat or drink until they have murdered Paul. They conspire with the high priest and elders in a plot to lure Paul to another council meeting, and they plan on making a request of Claudius Lysias and saying, please just bring Paul. We, we need to ask him a few more questions. And now Lysias is interested in getting exactly what the charges are against Paul. So he, he would be open to another meeting with these elders. And as they're plotting this, we find out that Paul's young nephew somehow hears about this or overhears this plotting, this young lad. And he goes, this brave young lad makes his way to these Roman barracks to see his uncle Paul. And he tells his uncle Paul about this plot against him. 
Paul calls for one of the centurions to his cell and he introduces them to his nephew and says he has something that he needs to tell the commander. And the centurion, this Roman centurion, over a hundred soldiers, this important person takes this young boy to the commander and this young boy has an audience with the commander and the commander takes this young boy by the hand. So he must have been pretty young and takes him into another room. So it's very private. And the young boy tells him about these 40 Jews that have conspired together not to eat or drink until they have murdered his uncle. He tells them about the plot. He tells them about how they plan to talk to Lysias and to make requests for a council meeting, but it's all a ruse. Claudius Lysias says to the young man, don't tell anyone what you've told me. And then Claudius goes to making plans and he decides on a royal escort for Paul. Paul is put on a horse. Now, most prisoners have to walk in the midst of soldiers. And there's usually not that many soldiers that would guard someone, maybe one, maybe two. But instead, Claudius makes these plans and he mounts Paul on a horse like a royal citizen, like a king. And he hires 200 soldiers, 200 other soldiers carrying spears and 70 cavalrymen. Paul is in the midst of these 400 soldiers, some 200 again with the spears and these these 70 cavalrymen, not cavalry chaplainmen, but just cavalrymen <laughs> surrounding him as he's mounted in the middle. Talk about a royal escort. And they take him to Antipatris, which is the, um, it was a, a Roman fortress. Now, the journey from Jerusalem to this Roman fortress would have been very, very dangerous. This is where you could be um, ambushed. And so this is where you need the heaviest guard and they deliver Paul safely to this place. Think about it. 40 zealous Jews not going to eat, which would make them even grumpier and meaner. Hungry men, nothing like one hungry man, let alone 40 hungry men. Wouldn't want to be in that company. So what happens Paul gets a royal escort. Paul is protected. Paul is insulated. Why these men, if they keep their vow, either starved to death or died of thirst or had to break their vow. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Paul also is given a letter of commendation by Claudius Lysias. This is coming from the commander himself of all the troops in Jerusalem. And he is saying that Paul is a Roman citizen, that there are no clear charges against him, that he needed to be rescued, and that he is being sent to be tried before Felix. This is actually a letter of commendation by this commander. It is not a letter of condemnation, but commendation. There are no charges. He's a Roman citizen. In other words, the commander is saying, I treated him right And you need to be very careful in your treatment of him. Paul is then taken to Herod's Praetorium. He is not taken to the prison in Caesarea. Now, first of all, he goes into Caesarea, which is a walled city. It is a Roman stronghold with high walls. He is even more protected. Then he is not taken to the prison in Caesarea, but he is taken to Herod's Praetorium. He has taken, that used to be Herod's palace. It was one of the nicer accommodations in Caesarea. It was where the soldiers were housed. So God is protecting and insulating his servant because no weapon formed against the servant of God will prosper. This is what God is doing. Next we find Paul in the court of Felix. Now, Felix is a despot. Despot. He's the only slave to ever become a Roman governor. He's a, his brother is a friend of Emperor Claudius. 
and he secured this post. His brother secured this post for him. We're told about Felix by Josephus. He indulged in every license and excess, thinking that he could do any evil act with impunity. He was one of those men who had no conscience. He had gotten away with everything. He had also put down many insurrections with barbarous brutality against the Jews. He was not liked by the Jews, but he was in league with the high priest, Ananias. And so we're told that Ananias comes down with the elders. Ananias is somewhere around 80 years old at this time. He's traveled the 60 miles up to Caesarea, but they've hired a professional. So Paul is up against a professional. Here's their plot. Here's their new weapon against Paul. They hired a professional, somebody who could speak Greek eloquently, somebody who would flatter the court, somebody who had an edge. This Tertullus, the professional that they hired, stands before Felix and right away begins to flatter Felix, just buttering him up trying to get favor with this this, um, unscrupulous despot of a governor. And here's Paul. Have you ever just watched something like that go down and go, oh my goodness. I remember having to do a debate in school. Um, I went to public high school and it was on prayer. And the teacher chose me to be, you know, you tell everyone why prayer should be in school. And I knew the teacher didn't like me because I was a Christian. He was constantly putting me down in the class every opportunity he could. Well, ask Cheryl. She's the Christian. I mean, he just was like, oh. And, and I caught him in a couple of lies. Um, and I caught him and called him. Maybe that was why he didn't like me. But it was... Um, he would just say these things against Christians constantly, and he acted like he was so kind. And I remember um, the boy who was speaking um, against prayer being in school, that he got up and he had this tape recording, and it was just kids that he had interviewed at school, like, do you think there should be prayer in school? No way. And he'd gone out to the, you know, the field where the potheads were, and it was, you know, no way, man. And it was just like, and the teacher's like, that is the best presentation I have ever, ever heard. And I just remember, you know, it was only my friends that voted for prayer in school. And um, I lost the debate because the deck was stacked against me. And I, you know, to hear that and just to know this is not going to go down well. I already know what's going on. And so Paul is there and he has to listen to Tertullus flatter and, um, and then falsely accuse him. And he says that Paul was a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, a ringleader of the Nazarenes, and tried to profane the temple. So he's trying to incite not only the ire of the Jews, but the ire of the Romans against him. He's trying to say, look, this man is not just a threat to the Jews, but he's a threat to the peace of Israel, which is a threat to Rome. Now remember, Felix was the one who had put down these insurrections before with brutality. So he's trying to turn Felix against Paul. He started out with his flattery saying, you know what, we enjoy peace by you. We're, we're all right with you, Felix. We want you to be our leader. But this guy, he leads insurrections. He's a danger to Israel and to Rome. And we're told that all the Jews who were with Ananias asserted that it was true. So you've got all these people going, yep, that's it. That's it. That's why we're here. It's, you know, this is really bad. Now, Paul has to answer this counsel in a Roman court. There's, it's not like there's believers here with Paul. He is all alone against the professional in a Roman court. And everything seems to be against Paul. You've got the hierarchy from Jerusalem. You've got Ananias in league with the Romans. You've got Tertullus, the professional. And you've got all the Jews agreeing that these things are so. And Paul must make his own defense. This is not a good place to be in for Paul. So he starts out and he acknowledges Felix's authority. Then he says, I will cheerfully answer for myself. He explains that the the events 
that they talked about are very recent, taking place only 12 days before. And yet there are no witnesses, no witnesses that can say, I saw him do this or I saw him do that. These Jews that stirred up the insurrection against Paul are not at that council meeting. If it is so important, if the charges are so strong, why aren't they there? He says that they never found him disputing with anyone in the temple, that he didn't incite a riot in the crowd, the temple or the synagogue, and the accusations cannot be proven. Paul then says that according to the way that they call a sect, but the way is actually the way of the forefathers, the patriarchs. It's the true way. The way actually believes all that the law and prophets wrote because the way has accepted the Messiah that the forefathers looked forward to. As God said to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That Jacob so desperately wanted to be in that lineage that he bought the birthright from his brother because he wanted to be in the lineage of the Messiah. Jacob did not get money or possessions from Abraham. He got the blessing. And that blessing was that the Messiah will come through you. Paul says, this is what I believe. I believe the promise to the fathers. I believe all that the law was pointing to, the fulfillment of the law, and all that the prophets said. And this is what they said, that there will be a resurrection from the dead of the just and the unjust. And he said, knowing that there's going to be a resurrection, I seek to live right before God in good conscience, without offense toward God and men. You know, there is such a difference that believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. When you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are going to live a moral and upright life because you know you're going to answer someday to God. Those people who don't think they're going to answer to God, they live these lives of absolute corruption, hurting people. Jesus said, those servants who believe and know my coming is soon, they treat the other servants with respect. But those who don't think that there's going to be a resurrection, they begin to mistreat the servants and beat them, and they will suffer a greater judgment. Paul said that he came with alms and offering to the temple. At this point, Felix says, I've got the picture, Paul. I I see what you're saying. And he simply adjourns the meeting and says, we can't go any further until I talk to Claudius Lysias. This is over until I can meet with him. And then he places Paul in protective custody with liberties. He tells them that Paul is allowed to see all of his friends and he can come and go. And then we find out that Felix, he adjourns the others, sends them back to Jerusalem, but he begins to meet with Paul again and again and again, bringing his wife Drusilla even into these private meetings with Paul. And we're told that Paul testifies to Felix about righteousness, sin, or man's lack and inability to control himself, and judgment. The very things that we know that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of. In all three of these scenarios, we see that the weapons formed against Paul did not prosper. In fact, they actually did the opposite. The council became divided. Jesus said, any house divided against itself will fall. The council fell that day. The plot to murder Paul ended up giving Paul a royal escort and insulated Paul and delivered Paul far out of the reach of any murderous intent. We see that the meeting adjourned, the the court before Felix adjourned with Paul in protective custody and Paul with even more private meetings with Felix. Today, take heart. Because the promise of no weapon prospering is for you, the servant of the Lord. If you are the Lord's 
servant. If you say, I live to serve Jesus, this is your promise. You can bank on it. You can live in it. You can stand on it. You can say to every ammunition factory, you won't prosper. You won't work. My God will turn this to good. What God intended for evil, God will turn for good. That is the promise to the saint. That, that is enough to make you joyful. That's enough to strengthen you. This is not going to work. I had a friend and he had a daughter and and she would um, do a lot of crocodile tears. Those are fake tears for those not from the 50s or 60s. And she would just like, (laughs) and he would always say to her, is this working for you? Is this working for you? (laughs) And you want to say to those with the ammunition factories, is that working for you? No, it's working against you. Because no weapon is going to prosper against the servant of the Lord. It's not going to work. The promise is your heritage. When you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart and became a servant of the living God, when you became a child of God the Father, where you can cry out, Abba, Father, this became your inheritance. This became your benefit. This became your guarantee. You own this promise. It's not just for me. It's for you. You own it. So since you own it, claim it, live in it, believe it. This promise includes no condemnation. Paul might've felt condemned about taking on the high priest, but God promised that his servants would have his righteousness. As it says in second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness that God requires. Jesus is our righteousness. Jehovah to Sidkenu, God our righteousness. It's not about our performance. It's not about how we did everything right. We stand in the Lord and so we can be of good cheer because no weapon formed against us will prosper. Next, we can be of good cheer because Jesus is Lord. In fact, this is the reason that the disciples of Jesus went to their death and were persecuted because they refused to say that Caesar was Lord. They said, no, he's a man and he's limited. Jesus is Koryos. Jesus is Lord or sovereign or over all. Jesus came to Paul and said, Paul, be of good cheer. As you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you will testify of me in Rome. In other words, Jesus is saying, all going according to plan. I've got this one all under control. This is, this is as it's supposed to be. You know, so many times we think, no, no, this can't be right. I've messed it up or you've messed it up or, you know, who messed it up? But Jesus, if he's Lord, it's all under control. He's, he's got it factored all in. And it's going to turn out. The other day as I was driving in the car, the Lord spoke to me and he said, Cheryl, be of good cheer. It's all right. Everything's going to turn out all right. I've already been where you are. You see, Jesus is eternal. He's looking at the whole picture from beginning to end and his spirit inhabits eternity. He's already been where you're going. And so when he says it's going to be all right, he's saying it because he's already been there. He's already walked this way. I remember again, when I lived in England, getting this strong premonition that I was walking where Jesus had already been. And there's this song that we used to sing footsteps of Jesus that make the pathway glow. I will follow the steps of Jesus wherever they go. And I had the feeling that I was just stepping where Jesus had already been. And then somebody gave me the poem, The Hound of Heaven, which talks about how this man walked the labyrinth of the London streets with this strong sense that God was hunting him down. And I knew that I was only stepping into the steps of Jesus. 
It's all right. Jesus is Lord. He is the eternal one that inhabits eternity. Be of good cheer. He's already been where you're going. And he says, it's going to turn out all right. It's going to be for your glory. And everything is right on schedule. Jesus is saying, I'm in absolute control. Nothing has slipped through my fingers. This is how I meant it to be. All things, all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord. That means no exceptions, exemptions, or excuses. Jesus is kurios. Jesus is sovereign and in control. You are never, ever, 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 ever out of the grasp of Jesus. Never. Ephesians 1.11, Paul would later write from prison, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Jesus reassured Paul that no one and nothing could keep God's will from being accomplished. Not the Sanhedrin, not Ananias, not the plots of the Jews, not murderous intent, not Felix, not imprisonment, not in captivity, not the Sanhedrin, not Ananias, not the plots of the Jews, not murderous intent. Okay, I realized I just did that twice. That's the problem with notes. Next, thirdly, be of good cheer. God is not finished with you. That's what the enemy always wants to tell us, isn't it? It's over for you. You blew that. You, you called the high priest a whitewashed wall. It's over. You've done it. You might as well just step away. I know who you are. That's what he sounds like to me. And that condemnation. But Jesus says, ah, oh, Paul, good job. Great. You testified of me in Jerusalem. You did it, Paul. You did it. Not like you shouldn't have said Gentiles. Or you, you, know, you should have used this sentence or this phrase. Shouldn't have said it like that. No, Jesus is like, you did it, Paul. You did it. You testified of me. This is a word of commendation. But he says, ooh, but now. You must testify of me in Rome. There's more to come. I've got more plans up ahead. In Philippians 1, 12 through 13, Paul talks about those plans that God had for him. Speaking from the Roman prison, he says to the Philippians, this has all turned out for the good. My imprisonment, I've gotten to speak to the whole Roman guard about Jesus Christ. I've even had an audience with Nero where I got to share the gospel and the whole court heard. And Paul said, and many are being emboldened because they're taking heart. They're being of good cheer because they see that I am unintimidated. I am unhurt. I am standing and I am still proclaiming Jesus. Be of good cheer. God is not finished with you. The enemy would have you think you're disqualified, you're trapped, you're imprisoned. No, all these circumstances in your life are just the passageway to greater things for the Lord. I was reading Philippians chapter one from the New Living Translation yesterday, and it said, in no way be intimidated by, your, by anything that your enemies do. And this lack of intimidation will be a sign to them of the impending judgment of God against them. And then he says, to you, it has been granted the privilege of trusting the Lord. Do we ever think of a deficit or a trial as a privilege to trust the Lord? <gasps> this is my opportunity. The greater the trial, the worse the circumstances, the greater the opportunity to trust the Lord. We have been granted the privilege of trusting the Lord. God is not finished with any of us. These situations, these circumstances are not going to put us down. They're going to train us, prepare us for the greater things up ahead. There are greater things yet to come. Finally, be of good cheer because the Lord is with you. His presence is with us. In one of the apostles' darkest nights, 
The Lord stood by him. The Lord came and spoke with him. The Lord stayed with him. The Lord communed with him. We can be assured of God's presence. Psalm 46, one says, God is a very present help in the time of trouble. You see, God is always with us, whether we recognize it or not. When I was living in England, my first, this is the third mention of England. I know she's really proud of living in England. My first Christmas in England was very depressing. And I remember thinking, I'm forgotten. Nobody knows I'm here but my kids. That was part of the depression. It got dark at three o'clock in the afternoon and wouldn't get light till nine o'clock the next day. And remember, I'm sunshine. So, you know, in this, in this thing, I remember just, Lord, I'm, you know, I'm so depressed. And somebody sent me a card, a Christmas card. And it was late, but on the back of it, it had this scripture from Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And I thought, now oh, that's a weird scripture to send for Christmas. But that scripture is, lo, I am with you always, even to the end. The Lord was assuring me, I'm with you in England. I'm there. I turned to my Bible to Psalm 139, and it said, even if I should take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, even there, your hand would be upon me. The Lord is with us. I was on a conference call the other day. I had to be put on hold. And while I was being put on hold, the woman who was the um, moderator, I could hear her speaking, and she was saying, just close your eyes right now. Because the Lord is with you. He's with you right now. But you've just been going about your way and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And you haven't had this conscious sense of the presence of the Lord. So she said, close your eyes and just feel his presence. Just receive his presence. Now I'm on the phone. I'm about to be interviewed. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do that. And I just closed my eyes and you know what? I felt the presence of the Lord because I took the time to just stop and feel the reality of Jesus, the reality of his presence. I want to challenge you, go home, maybe and just feel the presence of the Lord. Take a moment apart and say, Lord, I just, I'm here to feel. I'm just here to open up and to know you are with me because he is. Ask that you might feel the reality of his presence. We can be assured of God's presence. Just this week, somebody sent me Psalm 46. I'm sorry, Psalm 64. That was dyslexic. Psalm 64, one through 10, NLT. Oh God, listen to my complaint. Protect my life from my enemy's threats. Hide me from the plots of this evil mob, from this gang of wrongdoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim their bitter words like arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent, attacking suddenly and fearlessly. They encourage each other to do evil and plan how to set their traps in secret. Who will ever notice, they ask. As they plot their crimes, they say, we have devised the perfect plan. Yes, the human heart and mind are cunning, but God himself will shoot them with his arrows, suddenly striking them down. Their own tongues will ruin them and all who see them will shake their heads in scorn. Then everyone will be afraid. They will proclaim the mighty acts of God and realize all the amazing things he does. The godly will rejoice in the Lord and find shelter in him. And those who do what is right will praise him. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Because today, no matter what predicament you find yourself in, under guard, in barracks, pending trial, surrounded by strangers, plots against you, appearance before despots, up against professionals, no matter what your, the IRS are professionals, no matter what you find yourself up against today, be of good cheer. Tharseo. Just say it. It's so powerful. Tharseo. Okay, I never ask you to say a word. This is like the first time I've ever asked you to do this. So just do it. Tharseo. A little louder. Tharseo. That was so good. I heard you, Kathy. Thank you for leading them. <laughs> Take comfort. 
Rejoice, be strengthened, because one, no weapon formed against you will prosper. Two, Jesus has it all under control. He is Lord. Three, his plans for you will not and cannot fail. He is not finished with you. More plans. Finally, he is with you. As the song states, everything's gonna be all right in Christ. When you need a hand to hold, everything's gonna be all right in Christ. Take his word and fill your soul. Everything's gonna be all right in Christ. Lift your hands, lift your hands and praise his name. Lift your heart for eternity the same. Lift your voice, his mercies we proclaim. Don't you know everything's gonna be all right in Christ? Everything's gonna be all right in Christ. When your troubles leave you numb, everything's gonna be all right in Christ. By his blood, you will overcome. Everything's gonna be all right in Christ. If you think you're sinking fast, everything's gonna be all right in Christ. He will give you the peace that lasts. Everything's gonna be all right in Christ. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Jesus is Lord, Kurios. His plans are not finished for you, and he's going to see you through to the end. He will not fail. He cannot fail. His plans cannot fail. And finally, he is with you. So, Tharseo, be of good cheer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. Oh, Lord, the heritage that we have, the promises that we have that are absolute, that are true, that are safer than a bank account or a house or a McDonald's, Lord, that you, that you will not allow any weapon formed against us to prosper. Lord, that you, Lord, our Lord and over all and everything's under control and just as you said it would be. Lord, that you are going to finish that work that you have started in us and that you are with us, with each one of us. Oh, Lord, let us take this word. Let us take, Lord, these four proofs, these four, Lord, banknotes, and let, them, let us put them in the treasury of our heart and stand on them, contemplate them, and be elated and filled with strengthening joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.